All right. So a little refresher. If you're joining us today um, and you haven't been here, you haven't been here in a while, we have been going through 2 Thessalonians. We went through 1 Thessalonians and then 2. And so a little refresher on 2 Thessalonians. After writing 1 Thessalonians, while Paul is still in the city of Corinth, he writes this letter just a few months later, actually, after the first letter. What happened is he received a report back from the church. You know, he sent a letter. He gets a report back from the church that they had responded really well to his first letter, that they weren't resistant, um, but instead they listened to him. They said, hey, Paul, we appreciate the advice. Um, and so he was encouraged by that, that they had received and were applying the things that he had taught them. Um, but at the same time, as they've been implementing what he instructed them in 1 Thessalonians, persecution starts to ramp up in the church of Thessaloniki. And so persecution has been increasing, and so now there's this new threat in the church. And so basically, Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to deal with three main themes, okay? And, and again, if this is the last week, and so you can always go back and listen to the recordings. But three main things Paul wanted to deal with. The first thing is that since persecution had increased, Paul wanted to encourage them to persevere, keep on trucking, um, especially in the areas of faith, love, and hope. And that's kind of, uh, you know, connecting with God, loving one another, and then waiting for the glorious return of Jesus. And so walking in faith, hope, and love, in perseverance, not just getting bitter or angry or downtrodden, but continuing all the more in faith, hope, and love. The second main thing that Paul wanted to deal with in this letter is confusion about the end, confusion about the end times, about the return of Jesus, because there had been some rumors from false teachings come through the church of Thessaloniki that claimed that Jesus had already come back, the resurrection had already happened, and so we spent a few weeks going through chapter 2 looking at some of those themes of what's called eschatology or the, the study of future things, all right? And so you can go back and listen to those if you so desire. And then the third main thing we're addressing today, and that's some people had just stopped working, either because they were like, well, Jesus came back, what's the point? Or um, they thought that he was going to come back really soon, or they were just really lazy. And so some people had just stopped working, and Paul wants to make sure that they understand that hard work is actually part of life. Wah, wah, wah. And it's honoring to God. It's honoring to God. And so that third main point is what we're going to be looking at today. And so I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, <coughs> in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right to get paid, in other words, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so here's the situation, okay? The situation is idleness. It's a big problem, apparently. So um, some of you know that Gene and I lived in Spain, and so I'm going to tell you a story about Mediterranean culture. Um, we had been in Spain maybe four months, and we were kind of getting to the point where we could have a conversation like a three-year-old. And um, Gina had befriended a woman named Lamia, who was from Morocco. She had married a Spaniard named Alfonso. And so they said to us, hey, we're going to pick you up at noon, and we're going to go out for lunch. And we said, let's do it. They didn't speak any English. So this was, you know, like, let's, let's go, right? So they pick us up, and we go to uh, the park in the middle of Madrid, called Retiro, and we start walking around, and we stop, and they say, well, let's get, you know, a bite to eat, so we get a bite to eat, and we have a coffee, and then we walk around, and we're walking around, they're showing us around Madrid, and then Alfonso's like, well, let's get a, let's get a coffee, and so we sit down, and we get a coffee, and, and then it's, and then a, a couple hours later, we're still walking around, and, uh, and then it's like, well, let's, you know, let's get a snack, you know, let's get some tapas. And so we go, we get some tapas. And at this point in time, for those of you who know me, because I finished the sermon and I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. I gotta go. Um, it's been a while, right? And so we finish tapas, have a coffee, and we're on our way home. And they are like, well, let's go get dinner. Now, mind you, it's midnight. We've been together for 12 hours. Gene and I got home at 2 a.m. after having kebabs at 1 in the morning. And we told our teammates the next day, and they just laughed and laughed and laughed because we were just so not used to that culture, and I'm Austrian. <laughs> so this is the Mediterranean culture. You have to realize that Spain is like that. Greece is like that too, okay? This whole region is like that and probably even more amplified in a day and age where you weren't distracted by cell phones, okay? And so Mediterranean culture places a higher value on time than task. In other words, time spent together than accomplishing something at hand. And so I remember one time I asked a Spaniard, uh, a lady who was sweeping her carpet. She was sweeping her carpet. And then she'd sweep everything off the carpet, and then she'd sweep around the carpet. And in Spain, you had to sweep all the time because you would get dust elephants. I mean, I'm not joking. They'd be the size of a basketball, okay, because it was very dry. And, uh, and I said, why don't you get, um, like, a vacuum cleaner? Like, you just get this done. Because <laughs> they spent an hour every day sweeping and mopping and sweeping and mopping. And um, she said to me, how could I talk while I'm cleaning if I had a vacuum cleaner? And I was like, yeah, but you could get done, and then you, right? So different cultures. So this is going to tie back in. Paul begins this section with a very clear command in the middle of this Greek culture. Keep away from a brother who's walking in idleness. Now, the word idleness here, it's actually not the word idleness. It's actually a word that means unruly, out of line, or undisciplined, but based upon the clarification of the rest of the paragraph, most interpreters translate it as idleness because that's what Paul is implying. He says elsewhere they're busy at work. They're not busy at work. They're just busy bodies. Well, 
What could that look like? Well, they're not working. Instead, they're going from house to house, exploiting generosity, okay? So it looks like this, you know? I'm supposed to be doing something, but I walk over and I see Mark and I sit down and talk about the Lord a little, maybe take a coffee, maybe tell him what's going on in the church, you know, that kind of thing. And then I say goodbye and I go and I keep walking and I see another one of my friends. Oh, there's Dave. And I sit down with Dave, have a little fig cake with some honey on it, you know, talk about the Lord, maybe pray maybe a little gossip here and there. And then I keep walking. Oh, there's George's. I can't go by George's without having some tzatziki. And so then I stop at George's, have a little tzatziki, talk about the Lord. I think you get the point. It's not a far-fetched thing to think that this is uh, a realistic idea, especially because Christian hospitality amplified with Mediterranean hospitality means if I stop by your house, you put out the spread. All right, this is true of that whole region of the world. When we were in the refugee camps, you would go to a, a refugee's tent. They would welcome you into their tent. They would give you their lunch, which they waited in line two hours to get. They'd insist that you ate it. They'd make you tea, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And so this is part of the culture. We're not like that in the United States, but a great portion of the world is like that still. And so you can understand that if you were not inclined to be a very hardworking person, you could just exploit other people's generosity and just basically be like, well, whose house am I stopping by today? And make that part of your week. And you could justify it for ministry. Well, this is a, this is a problem, obviously. And, but Paul says, what he says to the church in Thessaloniki is he says, stay away from them. That's literally what he says. He says, he doesn't say, well, don't give them anything to eat. He says, stay away from them. Don't let them into your house. Don't let them sit at your table. Just stay away because they're toxic and they're dangerous. And so the question is why? Why does Paul speak so strongly about this habit? And his conclusion is that it is counter to the tradition they received. Now, when we hear that word tradition, especially those of you who grew up in, in the church or you grew up watching um, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, you, you hear that word tradition and it's kind of like, well, we don't like tradition. So what does Paul mean when he says tradition? Is Paul talking about like having a pipe organ in the house? Is that Paul's tradition? And what you realize is that when Paul talks about the tradition you received from, from him, he's talking about the gospel-centered lifestyle of Jesus, of the apostles, the oral teachings of Christ that are being passed down. So for Paul, tradition really equals imitation. He's saying, what well, you saw me do, that's what you should do. That's why Paul says elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. And so he's saying, this tradition you received from us, in other words, what we model to you, that's what you're supposed to imitate. And so the question is, what did Paul model as the early church's Christian tradition for behavior? Because that's what he's encouraging them to return to. And so he mentions a couple things. He says, one, he says, we weren't idle. In other words, 
We weren't just loafing around. We were constantly working. We were doing our part. We were contributing to society. We are contributing to the needs of the saints, that sort of thing. Two, not only were we not idle, but we didn't exploit anyone's generosity. He actually goes as far as saying that we paid for our own bread, right? Which in some ways would be counter to the culture that Paul was ministering to. Right? And so Paul had an intentional purpose in the way that he was interacting with the culture. And the third thing he says is that we toiled day and night. So he toiled in work and in the gospel day and night so that they wouldn't be a burden to anyone, but instead they would be a blessing in both word and in deed. So Paul says, imitate us. And then he says, not only imitate us, he says, but look, we could have as, 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 as itinerant teachers, as an apostle, right? Paul was, was an apostle. He says, we could have demanded that you pay us something. We could have come in and we could have said, look, uh, I have what you need. And, and so you pay me and, and I'm going to teach for you. But he says, we did this voluntarily. Why did they do it voluntarily, even though they could have demanded money? He did it voluntarily, specifically, to be an example. So for this, it wasn't that just, well, nobody would give Paul any bread, or he couldn't, you know, he couldn't find anyone who would let him crash, or whatever it might be. No, for Paul, he's saying, I could have done all those things, but I chose to work hard, and I chose to labor both at my employment as well as in this ministry of the gospel, because I wanted to be an example to you. That's the tradition you've received. And he even goes as far as saying, frequently, I would say to you, if you don't work, you don't eat. <clears throat> so for Paul and his crew, they modeled hard work. Now, remember, Paul didn't travel by himself. Paul traveled with like a group of like 15 people. So that was going to be a significant burden if they just showed up at your house and ate all your figs. Okay? And so they modeled, modeled, they modeled, they modeled hard work even though they could have demanded money. They chose not to demand money so as to be an example. And so for some of you say, I don't see why this matters. I will tell you this, as someone who's coached missionaries and national workers in various countries in the world, money is a major problem on the mission field. Money is a major, major, major problem on the mission field, especially when you start talking about ministry in developing countries. Money causes a great divide within the church because for a church to give a national pastor $500 a month is almost nothing, but to give a national pastor in some countries $500 a month all of a sudden elevates him to have one of the best paying jobs in his community. And you can imagine how that can get, bring a great divide within the church of Christ. Matter of fact, there are some missionary movements which will go as far as saying you shouldn't give a dollar to the national church. Instead, you should empower them to be self-sustaining in whatever uh, culture they're in. And if you're going to give anything, give literature and things like that. But, you know, if you build them a building, then they're going to expect that you pay for the building when it needs to get fixed. So there is a way when you think you're helping, but you're actually hurting. These are legitimate struggles in ministry. You see, people can easily view ministry as a means to have a good job with a stable income instead of being called by Christ to labor in the gospel. 
And this is especially true if a local missionary from the West will give you a few hundred dollars a month to be a pastor. I'm going to be honest with you. Even as someone who was a missionary, when you don't have a job, local people think you're weird. They think you're weird. Um, one of the things that Gina and I really struggled with when we were living in Spain was that we felt like we missed having a very clear vocation that gave us a reason to be there, you know? And so you'd meet with someone like Lamia and Alfonso, and they'd say, well, what do you do for a living? And you're like, just a, I'm just a student. Just learning Spanish, bro. What do you say? You know, because if you're talking with a Muslim in Spain, and they say, well, what are you doing here? And you say, well, actually, I raise support so that I can be here to tell you about the Lord. Do you know him? You can imagine that this drives a wedge in the relationship. You need to be as harmless as a dove, right, and as cunning as a serpent. And so I'm not saying that missionaries shouldn't raise support, but as someone who lived on the mission field, I will tell you that it makes you feel a little off compared to everybody else around you. Okay, because you're just getting paid to be there and you know what you're doing is work, but everybody else doesn't view it that way. Okay, especially if you're raising four times as much money as they make in a year because you have all these fees that you have to pay for to the government and for health insurance and this kind of stuff. And so the point is this, if the tensions that we can sense exist today, you better believe that they also existed back then. That money is always a reason for division. It always creates tension within people. You know, people think you're paid too much, you're not paid enough, he doesn't do anything, she doesn't do anything. And so the enemy uses money to divide the church. Now, Paul realized that by modeling a sort of self-reliance, and I don't mean self-reliance as in like pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, but I mean as Paul modeled this hard work, he realized he was doing an amazing benefit to the local church. This is important and significant. Because after all, the truth is this, we were created to work. Work is good. Work is part of God's design. Work didn't come from the fall. Genesis 1 to 3 says that work is part of God's design from the beginning. But unproductive work, difficult work, toilsome work, that's all part of the curse. Okay? And so in other words, it used to be really fun to garden, and now it's really difficult to garden. But you still have to garden. We will work in the new heaven and the new earth, but it will be a joy to our heart instead of a burden to our heart. And so Paul has a solution that he gives to those who are idle, and this is his great advice. Get to work. Get to work. But he actually says two specific things. One, he says work quietly. In other words, work without complaining and without gossip. And then the second thing he says is earn your living. In other words, don't be a perpetual mooch. Work quietly. Let's look at that one first. If we're all honest, it's really easy to complain about work. We all do it from time to time, but Paul is saying it's not honoring to God. 
It's not honoring to God to complain about your work. Matter of fact, he says in all things we should be thankful. He says when we complain about anything, let alone our work, we blend right in with the culture. But when we do all things without grumbling and complaint, we shine like a bright star in the midst of a crooked generation. And so Paul wants us to realize that we should work without complaint because complaining is not befitting of God's people who have received grace upon upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And the reality is that we are entitled to something. What are we entitled to as people? You can yell it out. Hell, death. That's what we're entitled to. Because of God's common grace, that's a term we use to God's goodness displayed to all people, in God's common grace, he allows your heart to beat another beat. He has your lungs pump oxygen. He gives rain and sun to our crops to grow. That's all God's common grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We aren't entitled to it. What the scriptures say theologically we are entitled to is hell, is death. Anything God gives us besides that isn't justice, it's mercy. Because for God to actually treat us with justice, which we all scream for justice, if God were to treat you with justice, you'd fall over dead on the spot. But God doesn't treat you with justice. He treated his son with justice on the cross so he could treat you with mercy. That's the gospel. He's both just and justifier because of what he did on the cross. And so we tend to think that, I don't deserve this. Oh, you deserve a lot worse, pal. <laughs> and so complaining is not befitting to God's people who have received not only far more than we possibly deserve, but then we receive more each passing day. And so listen, do you complain about work all the time? Paul's command is this, work hard, do it quietly, be thankful, spread the gospel, not complaints. There's also something deeply respectable about a person who works hard. Something deeply respectable about a person who works hard compared to a person who just loafs around. For While I was in college, I worked for the state of New Jersey, and I'm not saying that all state workers are like this, so don't get me wrong. But frequently, I would come in on Monday morning, and I only worked, I think, 20 hours a week, and I'd come in on Monday morning, and they'd say, hey, go paint this office, because I worked for the College of New Jersey, and I'd go paint the office. I'd come back two and a half hours later, and I'd say, what do you want me to do next? And they'd go, you were supposed to make that take all week. And I would say, well, I didn't, so what do you want me to do now? And they would say, just go back to your dorm, we'll pay you for the full week. Okay. We're supposed to work hard. Now, the thing you should realize is often our culture puts us in a position where it's hard to work hard. But as God's people, we are commanded to work hard. But what about you? When you're at work, do you work hard or do you take 50 water breaks of the cooler? Because we're commanded to work unto God and not unto man. Working quietly is the opposite of being a busybody or a nuisance. Instead, you're a blessing to your family, you're a blessing to your community, and you're a blessing to your employer. So Paul says to work quietly. Second thing he says is this. He says, earn a living. Earn your own living. And we're called to be a generous people. Paul also says, let the thief no longer steal, and instead let him work hard so that he can give generously. We're called to be a hard-working people so we can be a generous people. 
we should work hard so we have means for ourselves, but also so that we have means to help others because it's better to give than to receive. All right, so Paul says work hard. Continue in verse 13 to the end. He says, as for you, brothers. No, so now he's talking to a different audience. He's not talking to those people who aren't working. He says, but as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. What about grace, Paul? Have nothing to do with him so that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace give himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. I hope it was like with a crayon or something. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul just went, and specifically he's addressing this group of people within the church who refuse to work, right? Um, they just don't want to work. They can work. They just have all these excuses. Just like the Proverbs say, this, the sluggard says, oh, I can't go to work today. There's a lion in the street, right? Always has an excuse. Maybe I'll work tomorrow. But for the rest of you, that's where Paul's addressing now. For the rest of you, well, you aren't the word off the hook either. And this is what he says. and gives a few commands. The same principle of hard work applies to you. So if you're here and you're thinking, it's a good thing I'm a hard worker. I work 90 hours a day. You know, if that's you, this is what Paul says to you. He says, that's great. Keep working hard at your job, but don't grow weary in doing good. And if we're honest with ourselves, if there's ever been a time in my life, my four decades, when I feel like you could be weary in doing good, it's, it's right now, right? He says, don't grow weary in doing good. Um, men and women, but I think this is especially a temptation for men, sometimes it's easy to pour ourselves into our jobs. And so we read that first paragraph and we're like, yeah, you got to work hard, bro. That's the way it is. You know, burning daylight. You know, you working hard, you hardly work. Right. And this is the way we get. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. We love being workaholics. Feel like we produce something. Feel like we were productive. Feel like we're contributing. You know, at our work, we often feel competent. And then we get home. And how do we feel? incompetent, okay? And so this is the reality. I want you husbands and fathers to hear me. It is a hundred times easier to be a workaholic than to be a present father and a present husband. I'm going to say it again because it's probably one of the most important things we're going to say today. It is a hundred times easier to be a workaholic and work a hundred hours a week than it is to be a present dad and a present husband. We're not only commanded to work hard, we're commanded to not grow weary in doing good. And part of that is to work hard for the Lord. And the main priority that God has given you begins in the micro and works out to the macro. And so if you're growing weary in doing good by loving your family well, loving your spouse well, loving your kids will, well, but you know, you work 90 hours a week, so you're providing for them. Um, I'm just going to be, I'm going to say it because your wife won't say it to you. You're hiding behind a smoke screen. Everybody knows it's easier to be a workaholic than a good dad of teenagers. 
And so we hide behind our job because it's harder to be present at home. All right? I don't think I can say it more directly. If your wife drags you up here, I'll say it again. It's easy to be a workaholic. It's hard to be present with your family. But that's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to be a present people. See, work is a part of life, but it isn't life. We also need to work hard at doing good. We work hard so we can be generous, which is good. We work hard so we can provide for our loved ones, which is good. We work hard at doing good, being a husband, being a dad, being a good neighbor, being a servant of God's people, etc., etc., etc. The second thing to point out is that Paul says that we need to take this kind of toxic sin seriously because sin infects like a plague. It gets into the body of Christ and a little leaven changes the whole batch, right? It spreads like rot. And so when Paul says to stay away from people like this, this is what he means. Stay away from people like this. Specifically, don't support or empower their behavior. And, but he also gives instructions about what you do about it. And what he says is, one, you take note of it. Two, you warn them as a brother. And if they won't listen, then you pull back the relationship. That's literally what Paul says to do. Now, the important part of this is warning them as a brother, not as an enemy, because that shows that you aren't doing it to get even. You're not doing it to be vindictive. You're doing it because you love them. The goal of every discipline and rebuke is never punitive. It's always formative. That's true of being a parent, and it's true of addressing a brother or sister in Christ. It's to help them grow. Is Paul being strong? Yeah because it's a serious issue. The reality is this. The church doesn't need more reasons for the world to hate it. Okay? We don't need more reasons. We have enough. Because we believe in a gospel that's offensive, like the stench of death to the dying. And so we don't need more reasons. And so we, we try to live among our community well. And with this, Paul ends his letter. He's encouraged them in their growth. He's corrected some false doctrine. And then he wants them to deal with this issue, which has the potential to destroy the church from the inside out. And so just real quickly, I want to make this practical for us. Look, today in our country and in our town, the culture says that it's okay not to work hard. This is true of our country, but it's also been, even before it was true of our country, it was true of our town. Can we just say it out loud? Look, people pride themselves, especially in Cape May County, at being able to milk the system. They do. And if that's you, Paul's words are really clear. Get to work. Get to work. Remember, work in Paul's day and age meant everything from running the farm to working at the shop to taking care of the kids to running the home. All of those things are work. It's not just going to the office, right? All of those things are work. And if you do those things, they keep you busy so you stay out of trouble and keep your head down. That's what Paul said at the end of 1 Thessalonians. The second thing is this. So one, you know, don't be a mooch, work. Two, work is satisfying, and that's okay. Like, it's okay. It's a gift from God in a lot of respects to, to work hard and to feel like, you know what? 
I'm glad that I did a good day's work. I feel good about myself that I just did yard work for six hours. You know, whatever it is, that is okay. That is a gift from God. God has us created in this way. And so it's healthy to look at the fruit of your labor, whether that's a document you wrote, a house you cleaned, a meal you cooked, a deck you built, whatever it might be. It's good to look at that and say, job well done. These things are good. And we shouldn't look at them as somehow less than spiritual. Okay? Because work is worship if we work unto Christ. And so we shouldn't somehow partition our life and say, well, you know, all I do is this, but I, I, I should be. And then we throw out some kind of like Christian activity. No. If you work at your job, if you raise your family with the right heart, it is worship. But if you participate in some kind of religious activity, whether that's sharing the gospel or Christian worship or whatever it might be, and your heart is in the wrong place, it's more dishonoring. That's the charge that God levied against the people in the Old Testament. As he said, you, you bring your sacrifices, but your heart is far from me. So God doesn't want you to go through the motions of religious activity because it's somehow more important than working hard and honoring Christ in your job. Are you following me? Work is worship if your heart's in the right place. Sharing the gospel is worship if your heart's in the right place. Gathering with God's people is worship if your heart's in the right place. But in all these things, if your heart's not in the right place, it's not honoring God. And so we need to realize that the posture of our heart is far more important than maybe we realize. So, Church, work hard. Don't live off the government just because they're willing to allow you. Don't loaf around if there's things you could be doing and should be doing. I'm not saying not to relax. I'm not saying not to rest. I'm not saying not to Sabbath. You need to do those things with intention and the right heart as well. But work hard, work quietly, and be a blessing to other people. Okay? And so uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a couple minutes at your tables to talk. And parents, if you want to slowly make your way over by the sliding doors to get your kids, you can. Um, but you can talk about the table talk questions that are on your paper if you so desire. And we'll give that a couple minutes to do that.